Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Our goals can only be reached through the vehicle of a plan. There is no other route to success. Is a quote from Pablo Picasso, the painter, sculptor, and one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest encourages all of us to ask some very difficult questions around our nation and its future. In this provocative conversation, we are confronted with the truth, not a politically and socially acceptable version of the truth. As Australians, we need to examine why we are void of a long-term strategy and short on policy. Our guest today is retired Lieutenant General and former Chief of the Australian Army, Peter Leahy. He is also Chairman of ASX-listed Citadel Group Limited and Director of Coden Group Limited, Electro-Optic Systems Holdings Limited, and a member of the Advisory Board of Warp Forge Limited. Peter is also Chairman of Soldier On, the Red Shield Appeal Committee in the ACT, the Australian Student Veterans Association, and the Australian International Military Games, which brought the Invictus Games to Australia in 2018. Peter is a professor and the foundation director of the National Security Institute at the University of Canberra, and in 2007 was appointed Companion of the Order of Australia. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Peter inspires us to stand back and examine our circumstances, our role in the world, and our political and moral leadership. He encourages a broad national debate on key issues that are in our national interest, sharing insights and very personal stories on a career that has witnessed the grotesque and the great of mankind. He asks us to stop celebrating our differences and work together for this and future generations and leaves us filled with great optimism and pride in our country. So sit back and enjoy Australia, Thanks, a strategy-free zone. Great opportunity. Peter, I'm welcome looking to forward the show. to it. Me too. Now, we're going to talk through a number of issues today which are affecting our nation. And I guess in one part, between us, the hardest part was to decide the, the title. Uh, we thought a country without policy policies in search of a strategy, or a country with too many policies and, and no strategy. Peter, why did you want to have this discussion? I think we need to decide as a nation, when we look at the challenges, both domestic and regional and international, 
who we are and what we want to be. I think we need a discussion about values. I think we need a discussion about national interests. Uh, they're things that are very topical at the moment and you know, as we're talking, the Prime Minister's in Bangkok talking to the Premier of China, Li Keqing, uh, and we need to talk about who we are, what we want. There are issues in our relationships in our region, but also issues in terms of the domestic policies, climate change, energy, and a range of things like that. And there are challenges as we look at the changing nature, and my background obviously is defence and security. Yep. But if we look at the changing nature of those challenges, political warfare, political interference, cyber, space, it's a long way from the traditions of, hey, we've got an army, we've got a navy and an air force, and they do army, navy and air force things. Well, we need to look at the problems of uh, transnational terrorism, transnational crime and drugs, because they have a real impact on our society and the way we live in it and the way we relate to each other. So I think it's an important discussion to have. Okay. Well, if we're going to tackle this discussion head on today, maybe for the benefit of the audience, can you talk us through your career? Yeah, well, I was the first one in the family to join the army at 18. Um, grew up in Melbourne, uh, one of the outer suburbs. Um, I did reasonably well at school, and but the family wasn't in a position that uh, we could afford or they could afford that I'd go to university. I actually, around about then, I, I had two ideas of what I might do. One was to be a KIAP or a patrol officer up in Papua New Guinea. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, the other was I wanted to lecture at Melbourne University. It's actually sort of not at Melbourne, but I'm now lecturing at a university. But uh, I looked around. The army was something that was in the back of my mind, the, the sense of public service, um, the romantic sense of being on a white charger riding down the grand parade or something like that. But I think in some ways I fell into the army. So um, I went to the Royal Military College and said, oh, I'll give it a year and see what happens. Well, I liked it and I stayed. Uh, and through my career, primarily as an infantry officer, okay. worked inside the battalions, um, had really good opportunities overseas. I spent two years in Hong Kong in a British Army Gurkha battalion, yeah, which was just wonderful. Um, a privilege to be with Gurkhas. And they're they're my, still my friends, uh, almost family in many ways. Spent three years in the United States at the Commander General Staff College there. Uh, first as a student, then as an instructor. Uh, and so there were 1,500 students there. Importantly, 73 different countries represented. And what that did for me was to give me a real sense of um, joint and combined operations, how we work as a world community to get a sense of understanding the United States. And then uh, came back to Australia, commanded a battalion, commanded a brigade, and then uh, got noticed and finished up as Chief of Army. So, um it's an illustrious career. It was a privilege all the way through and uh, just uh, wonderful to be around Australians to support them and help them. And now through some of the things I'm doing with the charities of Soldier On and the Australian Student Veterans Association, to continue to help them as, as they leave the military and, and are proving really capable of supporting the community. Some of them need a little bit of help, uh, but uh, hopefully we can talk about that a bit later. Okay. Maybe let's start on the uh, the first key topic. What is leadership? Leadership, and, and this is according to General Eisenhower, the commander of the invasion of Europe, uh, and later became president of the United States. It's the facility of getting people to do things willingly, what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really misunderstood topic. A lot of people look at the military and say, hey, it's easy, isn't it? You just give orders. Well, no, you don't. 
you have to build a team around you. There has to be an architecture. There has to be a sense of trust, a sense of culture, and there have to be the, the mechanisms to allow that leadership to, to happen. As a young bloke in a platoon, 30 people, that's pretty easy. But imagine what it's like as a chief of army uh, with uh, 35,000 people, uh, people all over the globe on operations. How do you project yourself to them? And so you need some of those cultural artifacts and the means of technology. But leadership is about getting people to do things. Uh, you can't order, and this is something I contemplated a lot because mm -hmm. I grew up in an army at peace. Uh, I joined in 1971. We're just coming out of Vietnam, uh, and it was an army that was getting smaller, 35,000 coming out of Vietnam, finished up as we went to Timor around about 25,000. Right, okay. And what we'd done was a few UN deployments, Rwanda, Cambodia, Somalia, and those sorts of things, which I now look on as baby steps. But an army at peace, that when we went to Timor, uh, the army stood up. Then we went to Afghanistan, they stood up and... They knew how to fight. It was something inherent. So that, that culture, to me, was really important. So that's part of leadership. You, you belong to a structure and an organisation where there are expectations on you. We look at our history. If you go to our training institutions and organisations, they talk about battles and some of them get in you know, long tan and coral yep. and those other things. Well, you're in the army. That's what's expected of you. And, and so that, to me, was part of that leadership, but also that um, we're a team. We're proud of ourselves. We've trained hard. We're the best in the company or the best in the battalion or the best in the brigade. Uh, it's also around appreciating why people join the army. And, and obviously, as an ex-army officer, I'll talk about the army, but it's similar for the Navy and the Air Force, and mm. I think we should be proud of what they've been able to achieve as well. But leadership is that facility of getting people to do things willingly, what you want them to do. And I, I used to get a bit annoyed with my brothers, for example. They'd say, hey, it's easy, isn't it? You just give an order. Yeah, I'm not going to follow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you don't. There, there is the ability. You know, you've got the slackers who don't follow or people who say, well, I'm, I'm jack of this, I'm leaving. Yeah. And a lot of people joined for four years. But if you think of some of the movies of Gallipoli, mm -hmm. think of that battalion from South Australia. Yep. The, when they attacked at the neck there, they knew they were going to die. Yep. But they got up out of that trench and went forward. And it's something I always talked about, I always wondered about, and I still do. Why do men and women go forward into battle with the full knowledge that they might be killed and they might be injured? The answer is because they want to, because they're part of a team. They're proud of being part of the team. And I think that's the really the magic essence of leadership. Now, it applies, I think, in the hardest sense in the army because there is that challenge of death or injury. Yeah. But you need in any organisation, in business and schools and academia and church groups and so on, you need to be able to build that sense of team. So I do, do a few talks around the place and I've called it command, leadership and management mm -hmm. to try and draw the difference between those things. Management uh, is necessary, but it, it's more a science. It's more how do you calculate to do things. Mm -hmm. Leadership is more of an art and it's essential and we need it all across our communities. And I've got some concerns and I think in some places leadership is missing. But command, which is particular to the military, which is your legal authority to compel somebody to do something. So my brother's saying, hey, you just give orders. Yep. Well, I can't think of many times where I actually screamed or shouted an order. Uh, and 
in this talk, I say that command is the last refuge of a bad leader. If you have to give an order to somebody, scream or shout at them, you've lost it. You're in the bad place because you want them to be able to say, yeah, I'm with you, I'm going to follow you. Think of a leader that says, follow me, and turns around and there's nobody there. So you have to be able to build on these things. So it's a sense of history, it's a sense of traditions, it's a sense of pride, it's a sense of commitment to each other. And in the, in the I guess when you, you look at the army, we clearly know what our values are. Courage, both physical and moral, and the moral one can be probably harder than any. Yeah. Initiative, you know, get ahead and do it. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Get ahead and do it. Teamwork, you have to be a team. And introduced more lately is respect, particularly as we've gone into some of these very complicated human environments and what they've called war among the population. We have to respect people because we're surrounded by the population, non-combatants, and how do you support them and how do you remake communities as we've found ourselves doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. So leadership, um, it's not giving orders. It's not being authoritarian. It's not being disciplinary. It's about building that team that willingly want to be part of what you want to do. But if I was a, um, a knockabout bloke and I'd been in the Army for 10 years plus and um, young Peter Lay comes in, he's just finished down at Duntroon, why did I follow you? How did you go about winning, I guess, the hearts and mind of me just to follow you? Yeah, well, it's something that happens to every young officer. Uh, they do their training, whether it's four years through the Defence Force Academy and then at the Royal Military College. They're prepared. And, and I can recall I went to Brisbane to 8-9 RAR. I was 21. And I was thinking exactly the same thing. What, who are these blokes? Um, 74, when I first went to a platoon, it was 30 soldiers. Um, about a third of them were straight out of Vietnam. So they've been about. And they've seen a lot more than you'd seen. Oh, too right they had, and a lot more training. Um, so you take it easy for a while. Um, and we sort of don't go in and try and sweep it all clean, have a look around, see what it's about. You rely on people and the relationship between a young officer and his platoon sergeant, who's generally the most experienced guy in the, in the platoon. Yep. It's a really important one. He's there to support you and help you, but you're the boss. Um, and... He's got to find a way of saying, oh, you got that one wrong, sir. Uh, and I use that later. So as chief of army now, 35 years on from then, the regimental sergeant major of the army, who was the senior uh, soldier in the army, who worked in my office, he sat on our board, he travelled to find out, was, you know, his task was to come back and say, hey, sir, you cocked that one up, didn't you? Yeah, right. And you've got to find a way of having people that can do that for you. And so this guy, Kevin Woods, uh, he'd uh, knock, come into my office, shut the door, and I thought, oh, heck, I'm in trouble again. Yeah, right. Uh, you've got to have that ability for someone to be confident enough to say that to you, but then you've got to have the acuity to be able to say, yeah, okay, what? how do I fix it? What do I do about it? But how do you keep that, you said earlier, respect. Okay, now, I know there's respect in regards to other nations that you're going into and, and um, backgrounds, et cetera, but there's also the respect between um, officers and uh, others, right? So, I'm, I'm in the army. You're a young bloke. I'm not going to have a go. I'm going I'm to probably push back. You're, you've got to win me over. But how do you keep the respect from how I deal with you? You know, I, in other words, I guess what I'm looking at, we can't be mates, can we? Oh no. Um, and I was going to say exactly the same thing. We're not mates, um, but you have to make them understand that you're going to look after them. And so 
again, as Chief of Army, as I'd talked to the young officers graduating from Duntroon, one of the things I said to them, I can't, I can pin the rank on your shoulder. I can make you an officer, but I can't make you a leader. You're going to do that by every action that you do, by everything that you do from this moment. You're going to set and maintain standards. Uh, And I'd also say, and I think this is crucial in all of this, is look after your soldiers and they'll look after you. And I think that everything I've seen since I've left the Army, which is now, what, 11 years, Mm -hmm. that's one of the most important things that you can think of. Look after people around you and they'll look after you. And it's respect going both ways. Was there any major defining experience for you early days? No, I think, you know, I look back on my career in some ways and think, well, it's pretty standard, maybe pretty boring, but I think they all add up. Um, to me, uh, Hong Kong with the Gurkhas was important because yeah. I saw a different type of leadership there uh, in that um, the Gurkhas will do as they're told. Uh, and you had to earn your position. I was a company commander, so I had about 150 soldiers. I had to do a language course. I had to learn the culture. And five of us from the battalion, British officers, and you know, not sure I want to call myself a British officer, but I did then. Um, we all went off, did this cultural assimilation and the language, yeah. and only two of us were selected to be commanders. So they came back, or we came back, and we got command. Um and I had to be really careful and calculated about the orders I gave because the Gurkhas would do it. In the Australian Army, it was more of a negotiation. Um, yeah, but not ask that or, hey, boss, that's a bloody dick effort, an idea, or boss, we need a rest. And what had happened then, you'd get a rock chucked at the back of your head and someone would do a field signal for, I need a durry. And uh, so there was that sort of negotiation going on. Um I think that was an important occasion for me. Okay. Um, but it's it's really about having a sense of we're in this together. Um, for example, in the Australian Army, the officers eat last. Um, why? Well, because the soldiers are going to be doing most of the work and you need to look after them. And um, many occasions, <laughs> see, there's nothing left. Okay. Um, so they need to know that you're going to look after them really importantly. So that's where some of the respect comes from. Now, not everybody gets through with it. Not everybody passes. Um, Well, that's the way it is. You've got a lot of people coming in. I like the fact that people join the military, and I keep a close eye on the ads um, for young recruits. I like the fact that uh, Army, challenge yourself. And that, I think, is the defining bit. I'm in there to prove something to myself and to the people around me. Did you have aspirations to make it all the way to the top? Hell no, no. Um, I didn't really know much of the the army system. So your mum and dad weren't from the military? No, 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 nothing. As I said, first one from the family. I'd read quite a bit of history and so on. But um, I thought, oh, if I can get through this, get through a few years, a major would be all right. And I think we're nearly all the same, everyone that I was around with. Maybe I can get to Lieutenant Colonel and command a battalion. Wow. What would that be like? Yeah. But I think that was our horizon. Okay. And then, well, I, I did command a battalion. And then uh, and I, I say to the sort of officers of that rank now, strap in and go for the ride. You don't know what's coming. Uh, and this to me is important. There's no, There should be no sense of entitlement of rank or anything. 
if I look at the army, what I see is a very egalitarian place and I see a place that really operates on merit. That is, if you prove yourself, if you're capable and you work hard and you keep going through, you're going to get looked after. And I think, um, apart from people, and that sort of age, I'm talking as a lieutenant colonel, I, was, I guess I was approaching 40, family, kids, my kids were good. They coped with all the moves and were you know, on the, the go all the time. Mm. And so my wife was really supportive. So yep. I was able to get through. And the, the guys who left, well, I look at many of them and think, gee, they've really achieved something. They've, they've done well. Um, but for me, it was, um, hey, I'm having a good time. They're looking after me. Oh, another promotion. Sure, I'll take that because it was another challenge. Why do you think you stood out? I don't know. Um, I wasn't the best runner. I wasn't the best machine gunner. I think I can solve problems, and to me, that's the essence of the military. Here's a problem. Um, now do something about it. Uh, and that initiative, teamwork, in my case, mostly moral courage okay. of, of taking those harder decisions. Yeah, right. Uh, and I think, again, respect. But, no, well, you'd have to ask someone else why I stood out. Um, I think a sense of humour worked every now and again, make light of situations. And I can remember um, a general um, who was chief of the, the army at the time, he came up to um, Brisbane where I was a battalion commander. And um, At the time there was uh, the discussions around uh, the army and homosexuals. Oh, yeah. And we had the RSL sort of going nuts about and, and if you look at it, there have been homosexuals in the army forever. Yes. And one of our battalion commanders who happened to be a reservist and he, he's a writer, Peter Charlton, He'd written this article in the Courier Mail about uh, some famous generals being homosexuals, and he'd referenced Montgomery and he'd mm. referenced Alexander the Great Absolutely, and a few other yeah. things. Yeah, and um, so we we're at lunch, and someone was explaining this to General Grey that this article. And he said, "Well, what was the thesis?" And he said, "Well, famous generals have been homosexuals." And I couldn't help myself, and I said, "Hey, sir, how famous are you?" <laughs> And he, he looked at me, he pointed at me, he said, i got something for you to lay. And within 12 months, I was in the headquarters working personally for him. Oh, really? And I got noticed. Uh, and um, then he put me into a futures job and I got noticed again and I wrote a few speeches for him. And so, you know, in some ways, it's that's where it launched from. You know, how famous are you, sir? What's the toughest decision you've had to make? Well, what, talk us through some of the tough decisions, probably better, better question. Yeah, some of them... Uh, as I said, I, I grew up an army at peace and, and what I, I did for from 2000 on was raise, train and sustain people to go on operations. And I don't count them as the tough decisions. In some cases, you couldn't stop the buggers from wanting to go. And people that we saw it in the First World War and uh, people lie about their age to, to get on operations. And so the army's keen and, and that goes back to that sense of leadership and building the team. We're, hey, we want to do this. We've been training to do this. This is how I'm going to challenge myself. So around some of the equipment issues, um, I had to challenge the acquisition process in Canberra. It was it just didn't adapt to was going to war. It was far too slow. And I had to really push hard into there. Um, issues around enlarging the army, okay. uh, what we call the hardened and networked army. Yeah. Uh, that army had been at peace. It had done some baby steps. But we weren't prepared strategically with guidance, nor did we have the right equipment uh, to go really to Timor. And frankly, Timor couldn't have been much easier. But 
we made some mistakes there and then Afghanistan and so on. So what I saw was a need to have a bigger army, to have it more hardened, so purchase of armoured vehicles, and to have it networked, which is really the ability to share information and communicate. Um, I pushed that really hard inside defence. And, and as Chief of Army, I sat on the big committees and I kept pushing this and pushing it. It was about a two-and-a-half-year program. And people asked me, what mistakes? And I think this was – the mistake was I didn't go hard enough. I didn't ask for enough. Uh, and I took what I'd learned at Leavenworth at US Army Staff College. Mm-hmm. You can be a purist or a fusionist. A purist gives – pure military advice, this is what I need. I'm not going to dodge it a bit. I'm not going to talk about, oh, I know you've got social problems. We've got to worry about the amount going to welfare and health and education. And I pulled a punch. And so I asked for $5 billion and B for proper money. Yeah. Uh, and whereas I should have asked for $10 billion. Is this for Timor or was this for- No, this is generally to. Okay. By now we're, we're in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. And what we saw was the changing nature of conflict. And um, so I pulled a punch and I still kick myself to this day that that I didn't go hard enough. So whether it's a mistake or it's the hardest thing I did, but I would say to people, figure out what you want and go for it and go hard because in that intervening period, and it's about three years of development that we missed that $5 billion, we could have been a whole lot better. People could have been safer. And the other thing I think, um, again, I pull the punches, and military do this generally, mm-hmm. we don't transfer risk. What do you mean by that? Um, battlefield risk is ever apparent. But soldiers shouldn't have to wear that. That should belong to government, and government should have the right strategic guidance, and I know that's the sort of thing we'll talk about a little bit later. But we need to be able to say to government, hey, you're going to send a soldier on operations and he's not properly equipped. He hasn't been trained well enough and he hasn't been led enough. What military tend to do is say, okay, we can do that. And if I think over that period of, say, um, probably 2002, three, four, five, so we've still got people in um, Timor. Yeah. We've now gone to Iraq. Uh, Afghanistan first, and then Iraq, yep. and then back to Afghanistan. We had soldiers on multiple deployments, six, seven, eight times they'd been going. And I'd go into Senate estimates, and uh, people would say, "Well, how's it going?" I said, "Well, it's okay. We're managing. There's not much left in the cupboard, uh, but we're managing." Um, I should have had the courage to say, "Then we need more, uh, and it's your problem, Senator. It's something you have to do." And so. I found that hard to do and frankly I didn't do it because what we were trying to do is, what I was trying to do was give that sense of assurance to the Australian public. Yeah, right. Hey, we've got this, we can look after it. And if I look at it now, I should have been um, more insistent. In fact, um, an example was about 2004, we started taking casualties and somewhat self-consciously, I started saying the army is at war. And that's a big step because mm. these days we don't declare war. That's right. We were just doing conflict stuff. Uh, I didn't want the public to worry, you know, brother's going to Bondi Beach. Well, yeah, keep doing that. We've got this. We can handle it. And I think we should have been more involved in saying, well, people are dying um, and hard things, going to funerals. And we had a habit of, and prime ministers and governors general and so on, 
hardest thing was um, fathers, and nearly always the fathers said to me, why did my son die? And again, we go back to this, what are we there for? And in the case of Afghanistan, 18 years on, Iraq, 16 years on, and our troops are still at risk. So I think we've covered the leadership and the training and the equipment. Uh, they are magnificently trained, and the equipment is just world-class. But what are we there for? What are we trying to achieve? And again, this will get back to, I know, another area that we both want to talk about is what's the strategy? But just on this part, you know, you said uh, some young blokes and, and women and mums and dads are going down the Bondo Beach that afternoon, and you guys are you know, on the quiet at night going to do a raid in Afghanistan. Do you think the Australian population and public really understand what is actually happening out there? And do you think that um, in your role or in the, the minister's role that we're conveying the story well enough? That's why I was self-conscious about saying we're at war. Um, probably not. But again, it was that sense of, hey, don't worry a lot, we'll handle this. This is our job. We've been training to do this. Uh, we're not going to complain about it. Although, as I suggested, I probably should have complained more to go for that extra $5 billion yeah, right. first up. But I think there's a sense of pride that we can do it and a sense that, well, you know, get on with it. And it, it's not as though it was the Second World War or anything. Um, it was our commitment and I think our contribution to the Australian public. You know, I just find it interesting because everyone's suddenly a big Anzac fan on Anzac Day. Mm. But there's 364 other days of the year. But on that, that big day, everyone's out having a few drinks and celebrating and, you know, patting each other on the back and there's medals on everyone's shoulders as they're walking down the street. But where do you think the DNA is of the Australian, I guess, defence force for forces with the Australian public? You know, you see, you I, see I, the Americans yeah. are very, very close. Um, and we'll talk about probably returning vets, et cetera, and what we're doing there or not doing there. Uh, where do you see the, um, the relationship with the Australian public? I think it's strong. Um, and if, if I look yeah, okay. at the United States, what I see is that there is um, – it's more of a national security community. Everything is about patriotism. Everything is about, hey, we're proud of our army. It's terrific. If I come back here, what I see is more of a citizen soldier. We'll join the army and, and we'll come back and we'll go on with our lives. Um, partly it's geography as well that uh, about – what, 30 years ago, the army moved to the north. And so if you're in Melbourne, in Sydney even, right. you don't routinely see the military about here. No, you don't, know. Uh, but it's not as though there's a lack of support. It's inherent. It's there. It is in Anzac Day. But there's, there's another thing that really interests me and in when you look at what's going on. Uh, First World War, great civil uprising. We're off. Second World War, much the same. But now if you look, and I referred earlier to the war among the population, now if you have a look around, um, we don't declare war, and I think that's a problem. And I've said in a number of occasions, it's really important to make this decision to go to war, but what is even more important is to make the decision to stay at war. Because every day after you've gone, you're declaring again we're at war. And I think that's a real problem. And 18 years in Afghanistan, and what did we go there to achieve? Surely we could have achieved that in the 18 years. And if you think about it, if a baby was born on 9-11 in 2001, they could be on the battlefield in Afghanistan now. Surely we've got the wit 
to be able to have solved that problem or figured out another way to do something about it. That's the thing that concerns me. So in terms of that relationship with the population, I think you inherently know the support is there. It's not something the military demand. It's something they're grateful for. Uh, I'd rather like, though, that our political class would rather than set and forget, would be thinking every day, how do I get our military out of there? Um, um, I saw a program just the other day, um, Annabelle Crabb was interviewing um, Malcolm Turnbull. And uh, they were standing in the cabinet room of Parliament House and they opened up all of the doors to the Parliament looking north. And if you open all those doors, you can see framed the Australian War Memorial. And Turnbull said, we're keeping our eye on that all the time because of the responsibilities. And if I take people through the War Memorial, I look the other way from the War Memorial down and say, this is a reminder to them. I don't think they've been reminded well enough. Public support is there. I'm not seeing that sense of this is the most important thing we do. And that's why I like seeing politicians go to funerals. It reminds them of their responsibilities. But what about people in, in, in your um, in your roles? So your compatriots and the other members of the Defence Force, are they having that dialogue enough? or Are they are, are you a rarity in, in this no, thinking or, or is this no. a common? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, and it's part of the, the apparatus of going to war. Um, the politicians make the decisions. That's right. And we go. It's not as though the Army and Navy and Air Force or the Chief of the Defence Force decide, oh, we're going to war, tell the politicians. We're doing our job. We're tasked with it. We're involved in the operational decisions of, in part, when we go, what we go prepared to do with, and the decisions around Iraq, for me, um, we weren't well enough to quit, therefore this whole program around the hardened networked army, and we finished up in Iraq doing an important task but it wasn't the big combat task because we didn't have the right armoured vehicles, we didn't have enough people, we didn't have the training. So, um, and then we go ahead and do our task, do our job. And the, the Navy's an example here. They got into an enormous amount of problem uh, six or eight years ago. They didn't have any ships ready for a cyclone season. That's right, yeah. And Chief of Navy took a real bloody belting over it and it wasn't his fault. He didn't have enough money. The civilian organisations didn't prepare his ships, didn't have them ready. And what happened there was that the Navy and others talked about, well, we can do organisations. We can do that. And this is where I think the most important element of risk, and I go back to what I said before, the risk yeah. is how do we say, well, that's hard and transfer it back to government so that they can make different budget appropriations or perhaps except that, well, there are some things that we can't achieve. And now as you look at some of these different threats and challenges that are emerging on us, uh, I think um, climate change, um, are we taking the right actions there? I think cyber security, well, I don't think we're taking the right actions there. The threat is enormous. Are we allocating enough budget to it? Are we putting the right sorts of people to it? Are we training people, what I would call to be the cyber warriors? Uh, and then importantly, are we training people to be the cyber leaders? And in one of the commercial things I'm doing, we're looking at space. 
um, the war in space has begun uh, and we don't realise that and we're doing a bit of space in Australia but it's more about firms and universities making uh, nano satellites and chucking them into space. But do we realise that if um, the war in space actually happens, life as we know it would change? So are we actually thinking about that at a government level, at a societal level? Um, you've got a phone, you used it to find out where you were coming here today, the yeah, GPS. Correct. Well, when the war in space happens, there's no more GPS. You're going to shut it down. It's gone. No, yeah. it'll be destroyed. Um, so there goes communications. There goes banking. Uh, heaven forbid having to go into a bank branch to get money out. Uh, that was the horror of life back in the 1980s. That's right. And my wife, you know, she would be grumpy for a week before she'd go to a bank branch. So uh, I just wonder, are we taking these sort of balance and balance look at uh, the challenges and the threats and the security problems that are out there? Well, why don't we launch into this, this subject then? Because we gave it a couple of different headings when yes. we, get, we were going backwards and forwards. But obviously, we both are concerned. So which which angle do we tackle it from, Peter? Do we tackle it from policy or do we tackle it from strategy? And in, in, in the common theme around this is leadership. Yeah. And so it all comes together. And at the University of Canberra, there's a plug for the university where I teach at the moment. Yep. Um, I talk to the students about strategy and what is strategy. Now, it's a often used and I think a more often misused word and people don't understand. So I, I start with the students and say, it's a hot day. You want a cold beer? What are you going to do? So to me, strategy and uh, Basil Liddell Hart, who was a British historian, talked about the calculation of ways and means to achieve ends. So the calculation of ways and means to achieve ends. So where do you start? You start at the ends. What do we want? And we talked about it right at the start. Who are we as a community? What do we want? Um, we'd call these values. Uh, and values change then into national interests. Mm -hmm. So um, we are talking about values, foreign minister, prime minister, minister for defence, and there's been a series of speeches where they've all referred to values. Uh, I'm not sure we've got it sorted. Teaching in the United States, values, mom and apple pie. Um, we want to live in a secure place. We want to be prosperous. We want all these sorts of things. Kevin Rudd um, in 2008 at Sydney University talked about mateship as a value. Well, I think it needs something a bit more tangible and, and we need to discuss it. Uh, our society is changing. What do we do about that? So I think that's where we start. What do we want? And then you start looking at national interests. Yep. Um, clearly, as an island nation, one of our national interests should be lines of communications, sea lines of communications, open and free. Um, we're talking about some of these political values at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I don't think we're going through this well enough. Um, so I would encourage a, a broad national debate about this. Then we talk about when events happen, how do you pursue your values and how do you pursue your national interests? And mm -hmm. one of the things that I, I remember very vividly was that um, I went to France as chief of army. Mm -hmm. I had all my gear on. I looked really terrific, you know, sort of. And we're at Villa Bretonneux oh, yeah. in the town where we will never forget Australians. Yes. And the mayor came up to me and he said, um, we French do not understand why you Australians came here in the First World War 
but you helped save our democracy. And I, I still get bloody goosebumps when I say that. Uh, you helped save our democracy. Peter Cosgrove when, of Timor said, well, we looked over our back fence and we saw our neighbour in trouble. And, and I think Second World War, this is about supporting people who were facing totalitarian or fascism or communism or something else. Uh, we were taking our values and taking them overseas. So I think that's important. Uh, but if you're going to expend blood and treasure on these things, you better be pretty serious about it. It's not something that you go into and then sort of either set or forget or you're not serious about it and you don't follow through. So what are the ends? Um, what do we want as a nation? And if you, you look at the United States, during the 80s, um, Kuwaiti uh, reflagging of Kuwaiti oil tankers and so on, yeah. um, they talk about vital national interests. Now, vital meant to the US, and it still does, hey, that's so important, we'll use nukes on that, so you better not come anywhere near that one. There's another thing that um, I talked to, again talked to the students about, the nature of our community and our constitution. And I put up various constitutions or bits of them and um, I used the Indian, Pakistani and Indonesian constitutions. And they all talk about revolution and changing the nature of the relationship between the rulers and the community, the ex-colonial nations. Whereas if you look at our constitution, it's pretty well an act of parliament. We just transferred it over. So isn't that sort of fundamental issue that we're going to be a combined nation, we're going to do these things? I think that's worth a chat. Mm -hmm. And then you take it all the way down, what are the ends, and, and whether people like it or not, but more in a journalistic flourish, I wrote an article just recently where I said Australia is a strategy-free zone. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've got a real strategy for um, – the Middle East at the moment, that set and forget side of things. Uh, the strategy, if you like, in some ways is don't lose. Well, that's not good. The strategy to go to Afghanistan the first time was in part based on revenge or vengeance, and that's not a good strategy. I've got a mate, um, ex-army colleague of mine, who talks about Australia being a strategy taker rather than a strategy maker. Interesting, yeah. And I think that's important. You know, mm -hmm. We've tended to go with the United States. Um, well, is that the best thing to do? Now, I've trained and I've worked with the United States. I wear two US medals. So I think I know them and understand and know how important they are. But you've got to think a little bit at the moment. You know, what's going on over there? Um, and you know, Some of my friends work for President Trump. And I can only think, what are they thinking? Where's this guy going next? What's he going to do next? So I think that's important. Then I come back domestically. Um, can someone show me the energy strategy? Can someone show me the climate change strategy? Can someone show me any other strategy, education and so on? Um, we tend to be looking for things to divide us rather than things that we can unite behind, these strategies. So um, I think we need to do a bit of work around that. Um, one of the big issues is our relationship with China. Yep. Um, I'm on a panel um, advisory board for an organisation called China Matters. And what I've seen through that is that there are two groups here. We've got the business group over here and we've got the sort of national security intelligence group over here. 
and they're working at cross ends to this. Business is going hell for leather. Let's trade with China because it's our prosperity. Mm. And there's some deep breaths being made in the national security space. Well, you know, we can't do business with Huawei. We can't do this. And um, we've seen, I think, some intemperate and ill-disciplined language coming out from some of our politicians who just seem to be winding it up for domestic issues rather than for, well, how do we relate to a very large country um, that have fundamental different values to us? It's like... Go back to Villa Britain. Um, just how far do we take our values? Um, there are some absolutes to this, but where's the bit in the middle? And I'm not sure we're trying to work in the middle at the moment. I think we're trying to work around the polarities. So, so can, I, can I ask you a couple of things then, Peter? So based on your experience and your networks, where do you see um, the likes of the Middle East, so Syria at the mm-hmm. moment? Where do you see Ukraine? Uh, where do you see North Korea? Now, what as a nation should we be involved in, not involved in? Yeah. You made some pretty pretty strong comments earlier. I'd like to see um, the Middle East in our rear vision mirror. I think it's time to get out. If we can't have achieved much in Afghanistan in 18 years, um, I think Iraq, and I just noted the first hints um, there was a television uh, uh, article that Linda Reynolds is in um, the 1st Brigade up in Darwin, farewelling 100 troops going off to Taji for the mission in Iraq. Right. And um, I, I'm starting to see that, well, that, that mission's over. We're only doing a training role and the Iraqis are capable of training themselves. They've been a, you know, they were hopeless in 2014 uh, when ISIS turned up in Mosul and so on, but they've now been fighting pretty well. So I think we can come out. I also look at that part of the Middle East and the role of Iran and Iraq, which is now really uh, very heavily influenced by Shia, yep. uh, Iran. Yep. Um, I look at Turkey, I look at Russia, and I look at Syria. I think it's just an untidy place to be. I'm not sure what we can achieve there. You know, What's the end state? What does peace look like? I do some lecturing at the... Um, Centre Defence and Strategic Studies in Canberra. It's a junior general school. Mm-hmm. And the first thing we say is, What's victory look like? How do you know when this one's over? What's peace look like? And one of the things you worry about is, what is peace these days? Cicero said that we go to war so we can live in peace. Well, we seem to be at war or we seem to be at conflict. So Iraq, let's go. Afghanistan, um, I'm not sure what much we're going to achieve there. If I look at the peace talks, um, between the United States and the Taliban. Yeah. Um, what I'm seeing, and, and note carefully here that the government of Afghanistan is not involved in the peace talks. No. What I'm seeing there is that um, Taliban are saying, well, you get out before we talk to the government of Afghanistan and we're going to have a society ruled on Islamic values uh, and the way women will be treated will be on Islamic values. And what I'm seeing is that Afghanistan has the potential to look pretty much like Afghanistan did when we went there in 2001. That's right. And the answer to the question to the fathers at funerals was to help little girls go to school. Now, there's a real quandary here, but I think uh, we need a public debate about this and in the parliament because these are national-level decisions. So um, Syria, don't even think about it. 
Now, just how complicated is that place? Um, Russia is involved. The US is gone. They're back. They're gone. They're protecting this. Uh, people are still concerned about ISIS, yes. and they should be. Yep. Uh, they've lost their territory. Uh, they've lost their leader now, but they haven't lost the ideology. Uh, this is something that will last for a very long time. And if it's not ISIS in northern Syria, uh, it's ISIS um, now in uh, West Africa, Boko Haram. Yeah. It's ISIS in Afghanistan. It's ISIS here. And if it's not ISIS, it's Al-Qaeda. If I think who's the stayer in all of this, it's yeah. Al-Qaeda. Okay. ISIS are an offspin, uh, a brutal, premature, presumptuous offspin. Yep. Al-Qaeda have got the ideology. Uh, and then there are others through the Philippines, through Indonesia and places like that. So let's get out of the Middle East and let's focus back in here because this step up to the Pacific is very important uh, and we need to be able to give effect to that. And I think if you look in our region, there's plenty of work back here rather than in the Middle East. So what's your thoughts on the South China Sea? It's complicated. China's been naughty now, and I say that not in sort of a serious way but they said that they would militarise these islands. The, the bit of me that sort of looks at history, and I love the, the term new geographic facts, um, they changed the game. Um, if I think about strategy, China's way ahead of us. We're pants down for strategy to China mm. in that they saw the opportunity, the Belt and Road Initiative and the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank. We were all just, we were thinking about it, but we didn't do anything about it. We should have acted earlier. And in, we, we should be more proactive about our strategy, stepping up and getting ahead. So I think it's important that we do much more with the Pacific. Because if, if I think of it in geostrategic terms, let's go back to the Second World War. If Japan wanted to do anything against Australia, they needed to own the archipelago. That's right. And we think of Indonesia as the archipelago. Well, no, it goes through PNG, out through Bougainville, down through the Solomon Islands, and I've just been, uh, my son was married the other week and we went to Vanuatu for one of these destination weddings. Yeah, okay. Uh, China is there. Uh, the, the locals aren't all that keen on it, but they are there and we need to be part of it. Um, you mentioned North Korea. It's a different game when you start talking about states that have nuclear weapons. Um, Australia doesn't have a nuclear calculus because we don't own nuclear weapons. And if I look at the actions of the United States, most of that is predicated on the fact of denying other states getting nuclear weapons. So what's happening in Iran, what's happening in North Korea and so on. That is a vital national interest for the US to make sure that there's no proliferation. And it's very hard for us to understand through all the nuclear weapons theory and, and, and so on. So I think um, in terms of North Korea, the reaction of the Japanese is very important. Uh, they are just terrified of what might happen because North Koreans launch something and it, it flies over Japan. Uh, well, there's something that's really serious. Not sure what to do about that. Let's have the strategic discussion. Taiwan, I think, is another example. We've got ourselves in a real quandary there. Yeah, exactly. Alexander said some years ago that he didn't believe, Alexander Downer, yeah. he didn't believe that that would bring on ANZUS. What's happening in Hong Kong? Uh, what, are, what are the Chinese going to do about that? Because whatever they do there will be watched from the Taiwan area uh, because, hey, it's coming our way. Let's focus in our region rather than the Middle East. 
But I, I was interested you say that, but didn't you say earlier when we were in the taxi today, um, the miss, was 150,000 missiles you were talking about in the Middle East supported by Iran? Now, yep. isn't, isn't one part of defence force to be on the front foot and have containment? Yeah, so calculation, coordination of ways and means to achieve ends. Yes. You start out at the ends, but then you've got to look at the ways and means. So what are the means? You know, what do we, what, what does little old Australia do about 150,000 Iranian rockets aimed towards Israel? Much? Well, Israel will look after themselves there. The US will support them. Others will support them. And it's interesting to watch... Um, not a close relationship, but a developing relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Because Saudi Arabia is obviously concerned. They, they want allies in the region. What's happening in Yemen? Yeah. And they you know it's largely – the Houthis there are largely supported by the Iranians. Yeah. What I see in the Middle East in the, in the broader terms is a epochal battle. And now that's a big sort of term, yeah. but this is Shia versus Sunni. This is – a thousand years in the making, they've now got real capability. I think the intent is there, and we need to be quite careful about that. Um, to me, Middle East, sort that one out yourselves. We've got enough trouble back here. And were you worried about the recent um, hits in uh, Saudi Arabia? Oh, of course, um, because what we're seeing are missiles, and those recent hits you're referring to are drones. That's right. Um, a very well calculated and coordinated hit against um, Saudi oil targets. Yeah. Um, and we really don't have the defences to be able to deal with that. Now, what if people, and there was another example uh, in, in Western Syria about a year ago where there was a, a network of about 12 drones attacked. Well, why don't you give me a swarm of 100 drones? Why don't you give me a swarm of 200 drones, all loaded with some explosive or, you know, let's be really evil about this, mm -hmm. let's put some uh, chemical or biological or nuclear waste material on these things yeah. and let's go attack, um, well, oil would be pretty good. Why don't we attack um, the rulers? Why don't we attack, um, in the case, in, in one of the magazines from uh, Al-Qaeda, in, in fact, it might have been ISIS, um, said, let's attack the MCG. Is that right? Yeah, it's on the front page. Talked about attacking the MCG. And here we are sitting in Sydney. How about attacking Moona Valley Racecourse? Uh, we need to be able to develop defences for this. We need to be able to think our way through. But that's um, in strategic terms. We can protect. Um, how do we prevent? But to me, the, the real battle, and uh, some years ago, about five years ago now, I, I said that um, this battle against... Islamist fundamentalists, yes. the radicals. Yep. Um, we're in this for a long time, and I, I sort of paraphrased Philip Bobbitt uh, in his book um, The Shield of Achilles and said the long war of the last century to determine which way we live in our communities, fascist, communist, or um, in a parliamentary democracy system, it's going on. Uh, we've pretty well beaten off the fascists, but communism, China's doing pretty well by communism. Yep. Parliamentary liberalism, it's, it's not sort of the flavour of the month. Uh, and what the radical Islamists, the fundamentalists want, is Sharia law. And um, they've got a few people signed up already and using the ideology, yeah. they're going for more. 
So that, again, is one of the other things we have to deal with. But it's playing our role in the global game. Are you suggesting we have to sit back at our own backyard? Because, you know, when we, when we kind of call the Americans one day to give us a hand, what happens if we never gave them the hand earlier? We need to think about that calculation and coordination of ways and means. Does it mean we deploy all our forces to the Middle East? The ADF isn't all that big. Peter Gration, and in fact, it might have been John Baker, chief of the Defence Force some years ago, mm-hmm. said you could fit um, all of the ADF and some more inside the MCG. So it's not as though we're this big military force. Yeah, uh, right. We're a good force. We're competent. We're yep. world class. Yep. But as I said before, I sat in Senate estimates and talked about the fact that we're in the Solomons, we're in Timor, we're in Afghanistan, and we're in Iraq, and um, there was a little bit left in the cupboard, and I might have been exaggerating how much was left in the cupboard. Back to the government risk. It's not only the forces you send, the equipment and the training and the leadership that they've got, but where you send them. And they've got to be able to prioritise some of these things. Okay. Now, as to the extent um, with the United States, we need to be, and some people refer to this as paying a, an insurance down deposit on ANZUS, that mm. we need to be there supporting the United States um, in everything that they do. And you know, every now and again, you'll see these articles in the Washington Post and so on. Australia's been there in every battle. Well, I think we need to be just uh, careful about that. It's it's untested. Uh, but let's think about, are some of those deployments in our national interests? Now, I mentioned Neil James, my mate, who talked about strategy takers rather than strategy makers. Yep. I'd like to think that we're going to think about these things. Are these in accordance with our values? Are they in accordance with our national interests? And is it a proper use of our equipment? Now, in almost every case, it will be. But when you've got someone with the judgmental skills of President Trump, um, I think we need to have that sort of sovereign capability, that discretion and determination back here to be able to say, well, yes, that one is or that one isn't. Okay. Let's turn back here. Let's go through some of those key points you just you, you talked about a few minutes ago regarding policy in this country. What What's the one that worries you the most? I've spent my life trying not to be political. Yeah. Um, I'd have to say I'm not particularly a fan of politicians and the way things happen. I think the ability to be able to make a decision based on, and I don't want to say evidence-based because I think that's a bureaucratic cop-out, but to make yeah. a sound and clear decision based on values and interests is really important. So I'd like to see that. And then I'd like to see the ability to carry it out. So I've referenced already climate policy, of energy policy and, and those other things. They've been trying to build these things for the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, exactly. And we just haven't been able to make them. And I think it's to our detriment. I'm not a fan of identity politics, and I understand it, but I made the point there before, we need to be able to unite behind something. Mm-hmm. Um, but we seem to be celebrating the fact that we're dividing ourselves at the moment. So to me, what I'd like to see is that clear sense of leadership that says, hey, we're all in this together and we can work together on these things. So let's stop celebrating our differences and let's try and work together. And I, I think Australia can do that. I don't know how it's done, but that to me is is really one of the big issues. 
Uh, there's a few discussions starting at the moment. Um, someone from Labor mentioned the other day that um, there's problems with political correctness. Um, yep. and, and just the last couple of days, that someone's challenged out of the federal bureaucracy, they've challenged Tony Abbott for being a, an agent of foreign influence. Well, give me a break. Um, that's just trying to divide things too much. I, th- I think that's important that we get that right. And then I think we just need to celebrate how good we are as a country. It's a terrific place to live. Now, I've been to some pretty shitty places and seen some pretty shitty things. Yeah, you would have. Um, yeah. um, some of the natural disasters, Pakistan and India and, and those sorts of things up in Banda Aceh after the um, – we can really be a force for good. Now, it's, it's an interesting comment that. Mm. Chris Barry, who was chief of the Defence Force around about 2000, came out and said, we're going to be a force for good. And I can remember at the time sort of taking a deep breath and going, oh, that's a bit hokey. But when you think about it, um, and you asked me that question early, um, why did I join the military? Hmm. A sense of public service, wanted to help people. I'd grown up, I'd, I'd read Newsweek, I read Time and Life magazine, and um, also Superman comics <laughs> when I was younger. <laughs> And for Angus Campbell, the chief of the Defence Force at the moment, I also read Batman comics. Batman's been banned from the Defence Force. But um, when I think about that, um, my career has been about a force for good. Uh, And I I want to celebrate Australia being that force for good in terms of who we are as a nation, but the example we set to the community and what we can do for people in need. Peter Cosgrove's looked over our back fence. That's where I think we can really make a difference. How, how have you found the discussion in business? You've now moved out of the forces and you've, in the second part of your career, mm-hmm. uh, as a director on a number of boards. So maybe talk us through that. So I'm on three commercial boards, um, technical advisor to another. I'm not sure about my technical skills, but um, these boards tend to be in the technology space. CODAN, mm-hmm. uh, communications and metal detection, electro-optic systems, uh, weapons systems, um, space surveillance, and also now space communications. Citadel Group Limited, uh, Secure Communications, and um, Warp Forge Limited, a startup over in Western Australia looking to do just astounding things with carbon fibre. Um, I've really enjoyed the technological side of those things. And, and in fact, it, it, some of it goes back to the, the whole military thing. Mm-hmm. And that, that job I had lately in the in the military was how did we get the best equipment onto the battlefield? And I can remember talking to a soldier who'd uh, used in, it was what, um, probably late, or early April 2003, a special forces guy going across the Western Desert. Uh, and they'd been attacked by an Iraqi force. And he used a piece of military equipment, an anti-armor weapon that we'd introduced to the battlefield. And in rather lurid terms, which I won't share with you, he sort of described how he'd use this thing. And he said two things to me. One is the battlefield changed that day and they never came back. And I took that back to Army headquarters and said, that's our job. Change the battlefield for our blokes and make sure that they never come back. And I see that pretty much in the business world. Okay. How do we change things and make sure that we get this big advantage? Generally, I think, to the good of the community, but obviously now to benefit of shareholders and, and others. Um, people ask me, how, how have you found the transition? Mm. Pretty much the same, really. Um, 
the military, we didn't have a profit motive, but my motive was to keep soldiers alive, to get them off, offshore, allow them to do their job, do it well and come back home making us proud and making history. And I don't see a whole lot of difference there. Um, I talked about billions. I talked about the fact that government was there and in some ways you try and transfer that risk to get more money out of government. Mm. But it's the same thing. It's trying to do what your task, what your objective is. It's more easily managed now because I can actually measure and you're doing EBITDA and you're doing all sorts of revenue and margins and those sorts of things, but it's the same task. You've got a mission, you've got a responsibility, you've got resources and you're trying to use them in a calculated and coordinated way to achieve the ends, in this case, of the company. Are we taking enough risk? As a nation, I don't think so. Uh, I think the, the companies, a couple of the companies I'm with, um, yeah, we're right on the edge of risk, um, right on the edge of just some astounding things and it's, it's exciting. Um, you know, um, particularly say this space communications and the, the space surveillance, um, right on the edge of risk, but it looks as though it's going to pay off. As a nation, no, I think there's a conservatism that we've got to be careful about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a reluctance to have the vision thing, to to sort of get out there and say, well, this is what we can do. Um, what do you reckon that is? I think it's probably a lack of imagination. And in some ways, it's a different way of thinking. The military way of thinking, I said there before, what's victory look like? And you put yourself out there and then you say, how did I get there? And you plan backwards. But, um, but Peter, you know, the criticism that the military officers have is that they only survive in a structured environment. No, I don't think that's true. Um so you put yourself out there, and I mm-hmm. talked earlier, and we, we call it um, mission command. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a theory and a practice that the military have been using for a long time. And in fact, it really sort of came out of the German, the Wehrmacht, in the Second World War because you, you looked at them. There, were, there weren't many of them. They were pretty well equipped. Yeah. But they were winners. So how, how did they get into that situation? Some people, the listeners might um, know about uh, Warren, um, and uh, the UDA loop, uh, what happened in during the Korean War. Why were the Americans' forces, the jets the Americans had, why were they shooting down more enemy planes? Um, well, it's because of the way they were thinking. Uh, and now this mission command orders. So you say to a, a person, um, here's my intent. This is what I want to achieve. And I'll go back to Eisenhower, and I love this intent. Eisenhower was told by the Combined Chiefs of Staff in the Second World War, you are to enter Germany and destroy its capacity to make war. Now, you want an order. That's the sort of order you want, isn't it? Qantas, um, when they were dealing with um, ANSET and the competition back then, reputed that uh, the mission was beat the shit out of ANSET. You know, here's a clarity of things that are going on. You want to be able to do that. So you, you give a person an intent, and you give them the license to take it further. So uh, seize the bridge over the, the Ruhr. Well, the guy got across the bridge and there's nothing in front of him. He thought, well, I'm off. I'm going to go and destroy the capacity in the factories of Germany and the Ruhr Valley to make war. Um, you give them the resources that they need and you've thought about it. And you give them the time. And then you say, off you go. 
And this was the thing that made me most proud of as we deployed people to Iraq and Afghanistan. In many ways, we didn't give them a lot of strategic guidance. In fact, um, again, one of those really rude army words was, here I am as a lieutenant general in the field um, in southern, uh, southern Iraq, and our commander over there, a lieutenant colonel who now survived the encounter, who's a major general, he, um, he said, you and your mates in camera are no bloody use to me. And I've disguised the rude army word there. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I thought, oh, good one, mate. But uh, he and I know each other well, and it's what I expected from you. I expect absolute honesty from every officer. And so what you're talking about are people who've been trained to make decisions, are prepared to make decisions, celebrate the whole thing, have got initiative, have got teamwork, have got courage, have got respect, and I reckon they adorn structures and organisations. And so if I now sort of indulge myself a little bit when I talk about mm. Soldier On, when I talk about the Australian Students Veterans Association, there's about 5,500 people leave the Defence Force each year. Right, okay. Uh, Army, Navy and Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been part of this environment, part of this environment that says, I trust you, I want you to get out there. You're part of the leadership team, you've come together. They've done some of the most amazing things you can imagine. Um, so this lieutenant colonel down in uh, southern Iraq. How about the special forces element that we'd let loose in late March of 2001 and said get into the western desert of Iraq and deal with the problems that are there. Now, we got that bit wrong and there weren't weapons of mass destruction. But this is a, a young major uh, with 100-odd uh, soldiers just barreling across the desert just doing things. Um, isn't that the sort of person you want to employ? Mm. Isn't that the sort of person that you can trust to make decisions, that uh, can build a team, is going to be loyal to you? Uh, and it's not just the officers, and I think we've got to be careful here. I think the officers are well-suited. They've been really trained through staff colleges and, and everything else. But have a think about it. Let's, for an example, think of a, a section commander in an infantry battalion. He's going to be about 25 or 26 He's got command of 10 men, vehicles and equipment. He's operating independently quite often. He's having to make decisions. He's having to deal with that aspect of leadership in a really tight group where you can't sort of sit over there uh, and say, you lot do as I tell you. You've got to build that team. You've got to give that sense that we are willingly doing this together. So I think it's um, if if business and industry have a look at this, they'd say, hey, there's real value in these people. Now, let me use an example. Electro-optic systems, um, it's one of the companies I'm on the board. The COO is an ex-army brigadier doing gangbusters. Just this business is growing really quickly. The head of our weapons division is an ex-army colonel. The guy who is running all our engagement and so on is an ex-army colonel. And I can't think of better people to put in that position. Now, it's got a, a bit of, well, it, it is a business doing business of defence, mm. but as individuals and the skills and attributes that they're showing are just terrific. The other side of this is that um, some people leave the military uh, physically wounded, yeah. not so many now, but uh, certainly um, uh, we're tracking about 261 who have been battle casualties. Yep. Uh, many more have psychological problems, post-traumatic stress disorder, 
or are depressed or have trouble finding their way once they leave the, the military. Um, they need help as well. Um, and through Soldier On and this Australian Students Veterans Association, we're trying to give them a hand. So again, I'd encourage um, industry to look at these structures and the organisations, and there's plenty of them around, Wandering Warriors and um, Team Rubicon doing terrific work, Legacy, some of the RSLs. There's an asset out there, people who have been strong, they've challenged themselves, and they're ready for new challenges. So pick them up and do something with them. They'll help you. One thing I haven't covered with you and I should cover is this topic, diversity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I think I proved my credentials there earlier by talking about homosexuals in mm -hmm. the army. Um, we all knew they were about. It wasn't an issue. Um, to me, it's um, can you do the job? And it applies across every level. Okay. Can you do the job? And um, I did mention to you in the taxi on the way in, I was involved in some of the early decisions about females in combat. Yeah. And to me, it was pretty clear that the battlefield had changed. We weren't seeing the fronts and flanks. You, you didn't see Blucher sort of march down in three ranks. You, you didn't see, uh, well, that's where the trenches are, so that's where the war is. Uh, this war among the population, the war along the main supply route, and women were involved. Uh, women are very important. Uh, a large part of the population, they bring different views and structures and they bring skills. So we were contemplating in the Australian Army what this meant. Um, and it was a view that women had been excluded from some trades. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was indefensible in the long term that we needed to be proactive about this. And, and the terms I used to use, let's apply logic rather than emotion. And you know, I think in all walks of life, emotion can be a real problem. You've got to think these things through and be very clear and calm and logical. So where the Army and the Defence Force have gone to is that um, as an individual, if you can do the job, do the job. But you have to prove your credentials to be able to do that job. And there's... For the Army, there are a series of physical tests and psychological tests and so on, but particularly physical tests. So if you're going to be in the transport, you've got to be able to change a tyre, big bloody tyre. If you're in the artillery, you've got to be able to lift ammunition, big ammunition. If you're in the infantry, well, you need to be able to march long distances with weight, shoot at the end. And in, in my terms, you've got to be able to carry someone my size, and I'm not a small chap, yep. off the battlefield because that's the task on the battlefield. So I think the Army's in a good space in that everybody does this test, male or female, and if you pass the test, you're in. If you don't pass the test, well, we'll find something else for you to do. And that to me is diversity. Uh, and if you combine that with the egalitarian nature and with the meritocracy that I've talked about, uh, I think um, the military are in a good space. Okay. We, we hit a couple of key topics today around uh, strategy and policy. What's the, some of the solutions? I think we've got to be prepared to talk to these things uh, openly um, without this. But how, how does that manifest itself? Is well, that I in parliament? Is that in, yeah, yeah, is that in the newspapers? Is that in debate? I don't see a lot of that coming it's, out. It's, it's all of those things. It's all very things. politically correct, as you said earlier. Yeah, it's all, it's all of those things. That's why I'm, and I think we talked about that. You know, I'm, in some ways, I'm a little concerned about it because mm -hmm. we don't seem prepared to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. um, look at some of the protests that are going on at the moment. That's shouting. 
and I've just talked about get rid of the emotion. Let's go with the logic. Now, what's best for all of us? What's best for some of these things that we could be doing? And we get these minority groups and sectional groups that are just going over the top. So that's where the leadership's required. Um, and frankly, I think we've just seen a demonstration of leadership with the Prime Minister in Bangkok. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do with China matters. Let's talk about the nuances. Let's talk about the subtlety. Okay. So in, in the case of China and, and Mr. Morrison being there, I, th- I think what's important, we've, we've seen an approach to nuances and subtlety. Um, rather than shouting at the polarities, let's try and say, well, how can we work these things? Where can we get the compromise? Because they're important, they're long-term things. And rather than go for the short term, rather than go for you know what's good for me right now, let's think more broadly. And, and in fact, it's just going to that Basil Adele Hart equation Calculation, coordination of ways and means to achieve ends. Who are we? What do we want? And how are we going to get there? Peter, how do we get the politicians to lift the game? I think they have to realise they're in Parliament to govern for all Australians. And if you look at the makeup of Parliament at the moment, and yes, we do need to have representatives from different regions and the way the Senate is laid out and so on. They get elected because of people in their region and therefore they're obliged to support them and push their interests. But I think there's that bigger level. We're in this together to do something for Australia. Um, I'd like to see the politics come out of it somehow. Mm. Uh, I'm just sick of hearing politicians when asked a question refer to the other lot and the mistakes that they've made. Well, I think they're all responsible. These problems haven't happened in the last electoral cycle. Um, in some ways, I think they have to be more polite, more generous, more considerate. Um, I want to be a bit careful there because I don't like bipartisanship that much, particularly when it revolves around defence because I think bipartisan can be a lazy way of doing things. Yeah, there, there has to be discussion and debate. But let's lift the game a little bit. Let's say we're in this for the future. This is about vision. This is about trying to achieve things. Um, as a young bloke at the Royal Military College, I used to, I hope the RSM doesn't hear me, but I used to sneak out and go over to the old Parliament House, and that's how old I am, and sit and listen to question time. Oh, did you? Yeah. Well, no. I'd rather watch bloody Seinfeld or some useless American television show than listen to Question Time now. Yeah. It's just awful. Yeah. Lift their game. And if we could uh, dial this telephone sitting here, Peter, to um, the Prime Minister, <laughs> what would yeah. be the, I guess, the three or four key things you'd like him to focus on? I used to ask this, one of the tricks when you're travelling around is, you know, how do you break into a group of soldiers? And So I'd go and sit amongst them and say, you're the Chief of Army for today, what do you want? And he said, you're not allowed to ask for a pay rise, mate. <laughs> and so um, work to lift the game. Now, it's hard around individuals, um, but collectively we need to just lift that respect for the parliament. And um, I'm just reminded that the Reader's Digest, and it's still published or else the terribly old ones I see at the dentist. But um, they do this um, grading of respectful professions mm-hmm. and uh, military and nurses and 
uh, healthcare workers and things that are up the top. Yep. Down the bottom, and the numbers change, but down the bottom you've got um, uh, real estate agents, yeah. used car salesmen, um, sex workers and politicians. Uh, sex workers are higher ranked than the politicians. Well, I would have thought, hey, lift your game, you blokes, get above sex workers at least. Um, I think we can do more in that sort of space. I would say um, come up with a strategy and stick with it. Um, some of these things can be solved uh, and they can be solved by leadership. Now, an energy policy. I've been trying 15 years for that. Um, I've been teaching it to my students now for 10 years and looking for it. A foreign policy um, before the one that came out in 20, late 2016, the one before that was 2002. Is that right? And so 14-year gap for a foreign policy. Um, well, we can do much, much better than that. Just follow some of the procedures. Think about the strategies. Talk about the strategies. And I think um, we should expect more from our bureaucrats, state and federal. They're hopeless, it seems. It's probably a strong word, but at implementing things. Look at some of the things we... They seem to think, and you ask questions about strategy and policy. Well, I think... There's the third bit, which is the implementation, making this stuff happen. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, and just go back to the military, we think at the strategic, operational and tactical level, mm -hmm. so strategy, policy, implementation, uh, and they're all joined up. It seems at times that the implementation of stuff is just not joined up. It's not done well. Um, so let business and industry get out and do things. They're generally, they'll do things that are good for the business, but it's also going to be good for the community. Let people take the chance, take the risk, and get stuck into it. And part of that would be to do away with what can only be seen as over-regulation. It's almost impossible to work in some of these fields. And, for example, recently we've had Christopher Pine as Minister for Defence and Defence Industry talk up defence exports. Well, it's almost impossible to get an export licence in some areas and, and examples of hundreds of days to get an export licence. Well, if you've got a policy, make sure it can happen and you support that policy and you're consistent. So it's all around having a strategy, having the policy and then making it work. Do you think business has been vocal enough? No, not at all. Um, and I used the example before of what we're seeing in the relationship with China. Yeah. We've got business over here just going hell for leather at it. Yep. And you've got the national security environment over here, really conservative making decisions. And I go to these China Matters meetings and you get the businessmen on one side, the national security lot on the other side, and there's, there's not a dialogue. So why don't we look at how we can bring those groups together? Why aren't business more involved in national strategy and there have been some proposals around that that business should come in and talk about the importance of it because um, what we're seeing at the moment is a, a bipolar approach that says well we're either going to be secure or we will be poor well subtlety and nuance is more important than that and that's why I'm encouraged by what I've seen of the meetings in Bangkok about that relationship with China. We have differences. There will always be differences. They're a communist state. 
They're sort of inventing their own form of socialism and a mix of capitalism. We're a democratic state. Um, okay, accept that. Now, how do we work together? But where are the red lines? And red lines are important, but they're a big problem because once you declare a red line, someone's going to try and cross it. Yeah, right. So is your frustration that we've got the ability, we just, we're not maximising the opportunity? Absolutely. I think Australians are creative. Um, we've got the abilities. We've got the technical skills. Think of the, think of the geopolitical advantages. We have an island. How many other countries can say we've got an island? So there's a natural protection for who we are. There's resources dripping out of the place. Um, we've got what I like to think is a, a society that works well together. And if I think uh, back to my army career, mm -hmm. uh, they all looked like me when I joined up. We were all boys at the Royal Military College and we all looked a bit like me. Now if I look around the army, um, there's... Vietnamese, there's Chinese, there's Turks, there's Greeks. Um, at the university, we've just seen a wave of uh, African young blokes and women come through, and uh, they're joining the army as well. Um, so let's combine together with this sense of purpose. Let's combine with those army values of courage, initiative, teamwork and respect. Do it as a nation, and there's nothing we can't achieve. You made a comment earlier, you're not a huge fan of the word mateship. Yeah, um, I've got mates, uh, but in the military, um, it's it's a hard place to be. To be the leader is hard. Um, in fact, it's probably a lonely place in that if you've got responsibilities, and some of it might mean ordering people to do things that would be dangerous for them or would be difficult for them, it's not about your mates. It's about the task and the people best equipped to do it. So um, I would discourage young officers from thinking their soldiers as mates. They should treat them with that respect that you with mates. That if you like that sense of love. Uh, and uh, there's a terrific um, book, um, Restrepo, uh, and this is a marine platoon up um, one of the valleys in Afghanistan. And they've really got a hammering up there. And chapter four, the title of the chapter is love. That's the sort of respect you have for each other. Um, whether it's mateship, which to me has this connotation of familiarity. Um, don't be familiar because you are responsible. You're going to have to make decisions. But love your people and respect them. And as I said earlier, look after your people and they'll look after you. Mentorship. Yeah. Um, not something that's sort of strong in the military. Mm -hmm. There is this sense of, well, I, I am the commander. Um, I think of my own career. That first platoon sergeant was a mentor. Um, following on, and it didn't work out well. Another one of the hard decisions. Um, we didn't get on and he left. But then I had um, platoon sergeants and company sergeant majors and and talked about the RSM of the Army, yeah. they've got a responsibility to keep an eye on you and mentor you. Um, I think of the first commanding officer I had, a battalion commander, I was 21, he was probably close to 40, Ted Chittam, still about. I really respect him, the way he did things. So you, you look at people and you model yourself after them. 
rather than sort of go around every now and again and sit down and get a, a briefing or a coaching or something. Um, I see it a bit more now. I'm at the university. The students come and want to talk and I can see the value in it. And there's a formal approach inside the military that you've got a 2IC. So the second in command. Um, now, the 2IC's role is to take over when the commanding officer is a casualty. So there's a, a real thing to be done there. And he's got other stuff he can do. Yeah. But the role is that you're preparing that person to take over from you. Yeah. So it's not called mentoring. It's just making him ready, doing the job. So it's not all that formal, but it's there in a different way. I'm just interested, when did you seriously make the decision that I'm going to conduct myself as a leader? Oh, it's probably when I um, I turned up in the platoon um, in 1975. So you set so yourself the standards? Yeah. I, I still... I let people into a secret. I own a pair of jeans. <laughs> Officers don't wear jeans, and and I only use them in the yard. Um, uh, if I don't shave, I feel guilty. I still have a haircut every fortnight. These are lifelong habits. Um, even if I go to Bunnings, I get dressed up. It's terribly sad. But it is that sense, uh, and David Morrison and Dave Hurley and others, yeah. uh, the conduct that you walk past is the conduct that you accept. Uh, and what I've said, you're on show, young leaders, you're on show all of the time. You're going to make yourself a leader. So I, th I think it started right out then. Um, when I was appointed as Chief of Army, there was sort of this sense, holy shit, is that me? I'd been Deputy Chief of Army. Mm -hmm. Uh, working with Peter Cosgrove, uh, there were things I wanted to do, but uh, I can remember going into Army's board, what we call the CASAC, the Chief of Army Senior Advisory Committee. Okay. And it's interesting. So in, in a board, a commercial board, you sort of talk around things and you make a decision. The minutes of the CASAC say the CASAC recommended and the Chief of Army decided. So the CASAC can recommend away all they like, but you're the decision maker in the end. And I can remember sitting down there and I'd, I'd been on the board as deputy chief for two years. I'd been there as a speechwriter and so on. Uh, and I sat at the chair and just before the meeting opened, I thought, holy shit, it's me. Holy shit. And it turns that responsibility back on you. Um, in, in my sense... This is a national institution, been going for more than 100 years. Um, there is a responsibility of blood and treasure. There's an expectation of reputation that we're going to do the right thing. And I found as I travelled around and I frequently went off to Iraq and Afghanistan, I'd come back with this real sense of pride of what our soldiers were doing and I started calling them ambassadors for Australia in the sort of population sense. Uh, and it, I deliberately did that because uh, during the, one of the revolutions in the Philippines in the 1950s, the Hakbalhap Revolution, President Moksaisai, who was then the um, Minister for Defence, the Secretary of Defence, said to his soldiers, you're out there as ambassadors for your nation and you're going to bring people on. Uh, and so w when I looked at our soldiers, 
um, what they were doing, whether it was in refugee camps or Cabello camp, for example, which was just awful, and, and what the, the soldiers who were there, this was a massacre uh, in Rwanda, um, and they're nearly all damaged. Um, I just came back with this enormous sense of pride that they were representing our values as a nation, they were representing the army, that courage, initiative and teamwork. And so they were ambassadors for the nation. And if, and if I think about it, and um, we did talk about this in the in the car coming over, mm. the values, courage, so on. Yeah. But a slight little sense of larrikinism. Yeah. Um, we're having we're having fun. We're doing this, but I'm not going to be overwhelmed by it. Now, I guess I was a bit of a larrikin as a young officer. I can recall that uh, I enjoyed a beer or seven, <laughs> and um, the the soldiers on duty um, would see me come back, perhaps um, a little later than might be normal, and the word would go around the platoon: hey, "Don't do PT with the boss in the morning," because I had a reputation of punishing myself. Oh, did you? So we'd do something pretty hard for PT, and uh, so th- they'd just disappear. But um, have fun. Uh, be a little bit sort of risk-taking. I think that's really important, that tinge of larrikinism. But I I look back on my career, I'm proud of it, but I can say despite all the bad things that happened, it was a privilege and it was fun. Have fun. So so what advice would you have given the young bloke coming out of Done train all those years ago. Do it again. That was that enjoyable, was it? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I have concerns and so on, but I do it again. It's it's funny. The, so I was the only one out of the family. I've got three sons, and the eldest, um, some years ago, quite some years ago now, he was asked, "Are you going to join the army?" And he said, oh, "Shit, no! I've been in it for twenty years." Um, but I think. They had fun. They learnt. We travelled. We, you know, we enjoyed ourselves. But I'd say to people, and I'll go back to that advertisement: mm-hmm. challenge yourself, grow, and have fun. Peter, I can't ask for any more than that. I think it's been a terrific conversation. I've Thanks enjoyed for- it as well. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today, and you've been listening to No Limitations. 